Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. In this episode, I'm joined by broadcaster Derek Ray, who is everywhere these days. Fox Sports, NBC Sports, Amazon Prime, and even EA's FIFA 19 video game. We have a fun conversation about his story and how he approaches his job that I think you'll enjoy. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is one of the most recognizable voices in soccer broadcasting. You can hear Derek Ray just about everywhere these days, for Fox Sports, during the World Cup, and in upcoming Women's World Cup qualifying, and on the Bundesliga World Feed broadcast on Fox as well, for NBC Sports on the Premier League, for EA Sports on its FIFA 19 game, and also for Amazon Prime on the NFL. Derek, thanks for joining the podcast. Nice to be with you, Grant. It's actually nice to be on a podcast that I do listen to when I'm on my travels, so this should be fun. Nice. Well, thanks for listening. Um, lots to talk about here. I guess I feel like I should almost apologize to you for taking you away from your brief recovery time between broadcasts. I mean, <laughs> we're recording this on Friday, September 28th. What has your schedule been like over the past week and then again in the coming days, and where are you right now? Well, actually, I'm home, which is a bit of a minor miracle, because in recent days and weeks, I have been traveling quite a lot. And I just got home a short time ago. I was actually in Germany most of the week because I was working for the Bundesliga World Feed that you brought up earlier in your introduction. And then I had to really rush into a studio to broadcast the NFL because it was the first of the Thursday night games for uh, Prime Video, Amazon Prime Video, and uh, what I do for them is commentate uh, as the the British commentator. It's a UK English feed, and I work with Tommy Smith on that, who was my old partner uh, in the ESPN days on the Champions League. So things really have come full circle there. So I am home. I'm here for a couple of days, but then I'm off on my travels again. Um, short travels this time, just down to NBC Studios to present the Premier League on Monday. That's Bournemouth against Crystal Palace. More NFL on Thursday. And then I go out to Fox to work on the Women's World Cup qualifiers. So the variety is tremendous. And it was one of the things that really I was looking for when uh, we made the decision to move back to the USA from the UK uh, a year or so ago. So how do you do it? How do you have the energy for that much work, that much travel, that much preparation for so many games? Well, I think energy is an important part of it. I'm glad you've mentioned that because I think, first of all, you've really got to love it. And and I do love my job. I, I can honestly say that. I know not everybody has that relationship with their job, but, but I love what I do. And, and I love different challenges. And even though while I'm in the middle of the preparation, which is a key aspect of good commentary, um, the preparation in advance, even while I'm doing it, I, I, I do enjoy it. There are times when it can be laborious and you think, OK, let me go and do something else now. Let me go for a walk for 45 minutes while I um, you know, think about something else. But, but that is something that I think you really have to embrace. And uh, luckily, the, the preparation for me is something I cherish. So um, it, it all comes down to, uh, as I said earlier, really uh, having a, a love affair with with, with commentary, with broadcasting. And I've been fortunate enough to do this now, Grant, for more than 30 years uh, in a variety of different countries. And I, I couldn't really imagine doing anything else. 
Well, let's go back to the beginning. How do you, how did you get your start in this business? It's a very strange story because I was an early developer, if you like. I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a broadcaster. I've even got the tapes to prove it. They're actually still uh, with my father back in Scotland in Aberdeen in the house where I grew up. And we bought our first, um, as a family, uh, tape recorder. Uh, I'm sure younger listeners will, will, will think, well, what, what's a tape recorder? This was a, a stereo recorder. Um <laughs> And um, my voice is on there, uh, basically impersonating the commentators from the 1974 World Cup. I was seven years of age at the time. Now, that was the, the World Cup that really struck a chord with me. And um, I, I watched every game and uh, became obsessed with it. And from that point on, I uh, used to just talk to myself into a, a recording machine a lot. I even plucked up the courage when I was about 10 or 11 to take the smaller recording machine that we had to the local stadium, which was in Aberdeen. And at that time, Aberdeen were on their way to becoming, um, again, this might sound strange to, to newer um, football fans, soccer fans, Aberdeen were on their way to becoming arguably the best team in Europe in the early 80s. And their manager was to be a fellow called Alex Ferguson, who I'm sure mm -hmm. people have heard of as well. Um, so... To cut a long story short, I would make these tapes. Um, I eventually decided to send one of them off to my broadcasting hero, who was a fellow called David Francie, very rich Scottish broadcaster. He was the voice of Scottish football back in the day. I never thought in a million years that he'd even reply to me, but not only did he um, reply, it was a beautiful reply, uh, encouraging me, telling me about some of the, the, the tricks of the trade that he used and inviting me to keep in touch with him, which I did. And one of his other suggestions was to get some practical experience uh, at the local hospital radio station. Now, again, what's hospital radio? Most people in America ask. Hospital radio is a, a sort of a uniquely British thing where uh, we don't, certainly in those days, didn't have a lot of local radio. So volunteers would set up these stations to provide a specific service for patients in hospitals. And obviously a big part of that was coverage of the local football team uh, because there was no other way of, of listening to games because of you know, rights issues and things like that. So, um, so I would do the Aberdeen games. Uh, started doing that when I was about 13 years of age <laughs> and um, my voice hadn't properly broken at that time. And um, that was, again, accompanying Aberdeen sort of on the way to, uh, to this amazing position at the, um, at the upper end of European football. And um, in 1983, again, I should probably tell people, Aberdeen won the, the Cup Winners' Cup, which was one of the, the main European trophies at the time, beating Real Madrid in the final. They'd beaten Bayern Munich in the quarterfinal. Mm. And, and um, Ferguson was the manager. So I was actually exposed to him as a youngster. And um, I did... Uh, feel the full force of the hairdryer at a young age when I happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, was told in no uncertain terms, I won't, I'll, I'll give it the polite version, but it was basically get out of here, Sonny, don't want to see you again sort of thing. Um, and um, so, But through that experience, I was able to build a body of work. And at the age of 19, I then decided to send a, a tape that I was quite happy with or happier with, just based on, on the, the amount of work I'd done, sent it to my friends, my mentor, David Francie. And this time, instead of writing back to me, without telling me, he just passed it on to the producers at BBC Scotland. And a guy yeah. called Charles Runcie, who was the the head of sport at the time for BBC Scotland, uh, wrote back to me and said, could you come down? We'd like to talk to you um, because uh, we think we have some work that, um, that you could be involved with. Now, not only 
was it a chance to, to get on the air? Uh, what I didn't know was that my second game, the first game was Kilmarnock against Dumbarton. It was April 1986. I was at Aberdeen University at the time studying German and international relations. Um, so I got this chance uh, thinking, OK, I've done it. You know, I've, I've been given this opportunity. But then three days later, again, comes back to David Francie. David was out of action because of a, a knee injury, an old knee injury. Mm. And they needed a, a replacement for a pretty big game at Wembley, which was England against Scotland. So that wow. was my, my second game on the air. Was England against Scotland, and um, I, I stayed with BBC Scotland for for five years, and um, I learned so much during that period. But I had to be lucky in the first place to get that break. But I do often tell the story to to young people who ask me, "How do you get into the business?" And what I say is, you really have to work hard at it. You have to want it. It's not going to come to you. You've got to make it happen for yourself. And how many years then passed after that five-year stretch before you got connected to the United States? Well, it was really after um, that five years. And I, I'd been getting a bit restless before that. And when I look back now, it was a bit sort of silly on my part. But when you're young, you, you, you do get very impatient. And um, in the five years, I was, again, so fortunate because I got to cover the sport that, that you and I both love, um, in 19 different countries. You know, this was the era when Scottish teams like Rangers, Celtic, Aberdeen, Dundee United, you know, were routinely in European competition and uh, at the business end of these competitions. Uh, English teams, we should remember as well, were uh, were out for a spell um, because of what happens at uh, the Heysel Stadium mm. in Brussels. So, Scottish teams suddenly had this big focus on them. I mean, Scottish teams up until that point had been good representatives in Europe. Again, very different days back then. So I got to, to travel to all these countries to commentate on, on all these uh, Scottish clubs and, of course, the national team as well. And I uh, went to the 1990 World Cup in Italy. And that's sort of where the, the, the seed was planted in my mind that maybe there's something else. You know, maybe it's time to go somewhere else to do something else, um, to be independent. And uh, I did actually meet some of the, the people who were involved uh, in the, um, the 1994 World Cup in the U.S. And I'd sort of had this idea in my head that the USA was something really um, potentially big with the sport because, I, you know, I, I took a, a vague interest in baseball and the NFL. I'd been to the U.S. a couple of times. I liked what I saw. I liked the, sort of the openness of it all. And I thought, how about, you know, setting that up as a goal? Go to the U.S. You know, I'm a young guy. I'm single. I don't have any ties. Um, you know, have a little adventure and, and try this. And um, the easier path would have been to go to London, which is what most people did in Scotland at that time in broadcasting, because the BBC uh, obviously encouraged people to go to the headquarters in London. But uh, there's always been a sort of a part of me that's that's been slightly sort of anti the um, the traditional route. And, and I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to the USA without any plans, without any prospects. I'm going to um, arrive somewhere in America and I'm going to see what, what happens next. And what happened when you landed in the US? <laughs> well, I came out originally to do some freelance work. And um, what happened was that I very quickly befriended the guys who were running the World Cup operation in Boston. Mm -hmm. And um, they then said, you really need to talk to a fellow called Jim Trekker. Hmm. 
Now, you know Jim Trecker, and mm -hmm. you know, people who uh, are, are involved intimately with the game in the U.S. know Jim Trecker. I actually had spoken uh, on a few occasions to his brother, Jerry, uh, who was you know well-known journalist in, in soccer circles, too, in the U.S. I'd interviewed him, actually, because um, I'd, I'd wanted to get somebody from the U.S. on to talk about the World Cup in 1994 when mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. was, was awarded that, that particular World Cup. So he came on as a guest on my radio program, and we sort of stayed in touch. So, so I knew Jim, and, and Jim, funnily enough, when we first spoke, Jim said, no, I, I know you through Jerry. You know, Jerry's, um, Jerry's mentioned me to you. So um, Jim was looking for somebody to be his sort of eyes and ears in the Boston venue because he was based in New York. Jim was mm -hmm. the, the head of media for the World Cup in 1994. Mm -hmm. And Boston was to be a venue for the U.S. Cup in 1993. Um, and USA famously beat England at Foxborough at mm -hmm. the U.S. Cup in 1993. And so I was Jim's press officer for the, the run-up to the World Cup and then um, during the World Cup itself. And and I have to say, uh, you know, Jim Trecker to me is, is one of the, the, the finest guys, bosses, human beings I've ever had the privilege of working with. Agreed. And um, yeah, he, he was absolutely tremendous and he encouraged me, uh, you know, no end and we still stay in touch. Uh, but that was really my introduction. And when I think about it, Grant, it, it actually gave me, I think, an advantage over a lot of other British broadcasters who perhaps have arrived in the US subsequently because it gave me a sort of a two-year period where I got out of the broadcasting business myself Mm -hmm. And what I did was I, I, I found myself at the sharp end of, of media, and I had to really learn how the American media works, which is quite different. And in particular, of course, we were dealing with a somewhat hostile media back then. We were dealing with you know, some of the big newspapers, the Boston Globe, Boston Herald, um, you know, you know, very uh, well-established newspapers. But there was a hostility to the sport back then. Sure. Uh, in a way that you don't see so much nowadays. So, so learning that and learning how to talk to, to these guys and learning how to try to get the message across, plus operationally, because that was the main part of the job was setting up the press operation at, at uh, Foxborough. But Jim said, he, he said, I like the fact that you are, you know, even though you're young, you, you are, a, uh, you know, compared to, to most Americans. You're a seasoned um, you know, international football broadcaster journalist. And um, I've always had a bit of a languages background. And he said, I think you, you fit perfectly. Perfectly. And um, as I say, I'll never forget the, the spell I had working for the, the World Cup organizers. I mean, I know you then went into broadcasting in the United States after that. And there's one sort of famous word of mouth story that I've picked up over the years that I have never asked you about directly, which mm. is that back in those days in the 90s, I was told that you were told that by TV producers in the U.S. that they didn't necessarily want to hear a British accent and even would prefer to hear you speak in an American accent. Well, what really happened was, uh, you know, I did my homework talking to a number of different producers because ultimately, even though I was in the uh, the, the media officer uh, World Cup organizing um, committee business, uh, you know, broadcasting is my thing. It always has been my thing. Uh, but it was made very clear to me by a number of producers that, that they didn't see the development of soccer going hand in hand with the British sound. Huh. And I don't know why that was. I don't know if there was a backlash after what happened with the old NASL. I don't know if there was a feeling that there were too many British people, or English, Irish, uh, Scottish people, um, Welsh people in the USA who sort of thought they, they, they knew it all. So, um, you know, and if you think 
back. I mean, there really weren't uh, a lot of British-sounding commentators in the early days of, of MLS. It was the American sound. That was in vogue at the time. So, um, you know, I, I, I did have to earn a living <laughs> back then. Mm -hmm. So it, it, um, it, it became apparent to me that if I was going to do that, then I'd have to modify, modify my style a little bit. So, um, you, that, so the way I'm. So, so you did. I did. I did. I, if you were to listen to some of the work from back then, it wouldn't sound quite the same. Um, so there was a period when, when I went down that sort of American route and used American terminology and the, you know, the phraseology was, was a little bit different. But uh, after doing it for a short time, I, I don't know what happened. I think I was also broadcasting at the time for ESPN International. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. that's going to viewers all around the world. And it, it just it didn't seem right to be talking about international football uh, and, and so using this hybrid language. Mm -hmm. So um, and, and actually what happened was they got the rights to Scottish football around 1980, sorry, 1998, 99, which obviously was my bread and butter. Mm -hmm. And it, it was when we started to do that. I thought we can't do this any other way than or at least I can than um, than the organic way. You know, so. Um, so, so then I, I sort of said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do what I do, or you know, do what I did, <laughs> yeah. probably to be more accurate. And and if people don't like it, then then that's fine. And you know, in retrospect, even though I'm sure there were a few producers who didn't appreciate it, in retrospect, it's the best thing I ever did, broadcasting wise. That's, yeah, that's incredible to me. I mean, like just to think it was happening that way back in the '90s, because clearly uh, accents are of all types are, are seem to be welcome on broadcast these days of soccer in America. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think there has been a, a big sea change and I think what happened was, this is just my theory, Grant. I think what happened was um, when the premier league began uh, arriving in people's homes and you're, you're going back to about the early two thousands, I think, because prior to that, to watch the premier league in the USA, you had to go to bars. I did it myself. I'd go to local Irish bar um, here in the Boston area to go and watch the games and it was a sort of a closed circuit arrangement but uh, once you started to see um, English games and uh, you heard people like Martin Tyler and, and Ian Dark who's one of my best friends in the business mm -hmm. and, and people heard these commentators I, I think it opened their minds a little bit to the fact that it is a world game and I've always said you know, there shouldn't be a, a, a boycott against any particular accent. Just go and get good people. You know, mm -hmm. there, there are you know there are very good British commentators and and some commentators who are not so good. There are very good American commentators and some who are not so good. So you know, the idea that you would you would try to regiment things so that you know one nationality uh, would be favoured over the other to me is crazy. I, I used to always try and take my lead from tennis and golf, which were the two sports I watched. Um, a lot in the U.S. when I first arrived. And I never quite understood why there was this rule at the time with soccer, you know, no accents, or at least accents not really welcome. But on the other hand, with tennis and golf, I would hear South Africans, I would hear Australians, I would hear British commentators, and they seemed to be sort of grandfathered in. And I do think it was, um, this is my theory now, I think it was a product of the game in the U.S. still trying to find itself and still being a little bit insecure mm -hmm. about outside influences. And I think a lot of that came from MLS, which did want to turn the page from the NESL. It did want to be different. Uh, and I think, um, you know, it, misguidedly, in, in, in my opinion, I, I think it wanted to be, you know, this all-American product. 
when in fact that's not reality because the players in the league have never been All-Americans. They've been US players, but what's made the league good is the fact that you have this mixture. And, and you know, think about some of the early uh, on-field contributors to, to MLS, the likes of Marco Echeverri and Carlos Valderrama and, and some of these guys from, from other countries and other cultures. No, definitely. I, there, there's another famous sort of word of mouth story about you that I wanted to check in on, which was that you have been known over the years to call foreign embassies to ask how to pronounce <laughs> the names of players from those countries. Is that true or false? No, that is true. Um, I don't do it quite so much nowadays because we don't have to do it so much nowadays because there are other resources. But you've got to remember, uh, when, I, when I called the, um, the 1998 World Cup for ESPN, back then the internet wasn't as evolved as it is now. And, you know, you, you ask yourself the question as a commentator, how do you verify pronunciations? Now, as I said, I have a languages background. I'm quite fastidious when it comes to researching that kind of thing and, and getting it right but there are times when you have a country uh, whose language is is not one that um, that we as commentators are that familiar with and i remember um the, the, one of the first game actually it was the first game that i was given at the 1998 world cup was saudi arabia and uh, i was thinking well i want to get these names right i don't want to just guess and uh, one of the things that you do find at world cups is that you know research people can give you a list of pronunciations but it might be the wrong syllable or it might be a sound that is not exactly the same um you know that can't really be conveyed on a page or such you've really got to hear it from a native speaker so um i called the saudi arabian embassy in washington dc and had a chat with a delightful fellow at the press office uh, who seemed very happy to talk about football and um i faxed him over the names and and i got all the pronunciations from him and i did that a few other times as well with eastern european countries did it actually most recently probably with the Ukrainian embassy, one of the Ukrainian teams that I was covering while, while working for BT Sport in the UK. Um, so um, I, I view that as as great fun. And um, it, it doesn't have to be the embassy, of course. It could just be a native speaker. It could be the club itself. You know, sometimes you call the club itself and, mm -hmm. and talk to a friendly press officer. Uh, and uh, you also have resources online now, such as, um, uh, you know, things like Forvo and, uh, and players themselves. Nothing better than a player himself or herself saying their name um, into the camera. And uh, I wish, to be honest, that we had more of that. Yeah, me too. I, I, what's your opinion on pronouncing a name like Santi Casorla? Because mm. even though Spaniards, people from Spain, might say Cathorla, yeah. the vast majority of Spanish speakers in the world would say Casorla. And what? it's similar to like, people who say Barcelona, I guess. Like, What's your opinion on that? Well, my opinion is that as far as possible, I think we should respect what the player says himself. Um, you know, I'm sensitive very much to the lobby that believes that you should say Cathola or Alcácer uh, in the case of another um, mm -hmm. Spanish player who's recently gone to Germany to play for Borussia Dortmund, uh, simply because, uh, you know, I, I would want my name to be pronounced uh, as I pronounce it if I were in another country. And in fact, when I go to Germany, some people do call me Derek Ray, and I have to say, no, it's Ray. Um, and just like, you know, uh, hopefully if you're in another country, people are calling you Grant Wall and not Grant Var or something like that. <laughs> you know? um, so, so I, but I do re realize that we're talking subtleties with things like Catholic. Um But, but I, you know, I, I do think it can make a big difference with people. And the number of players who I've spoken to, and I always try to talk to the player myself if I can, um, the number of players who've said to me, thank you for, for asking 
how to pronounce the name. And thank you for saying it on the air like that, because my parents will be watching the game on television and that will give them such a thrill to hear it being said properly. Now, against that, there are people who get quite miffed when you do this, um, who, who get quite upset as if somehow you've committed a cardinal sin because you want to try to get it right. It is a minefield. You're never going to please everybody with it. But I think we should all, as commentators, it's just my opinion, but I think we should all go in with a commitment to try to get it uh, as correct as possible. What are the most important things in your mind that you have learned about doing a good play-by-play broadcast? Well, I think the, the number one thing is, and I always try to tell myself this going into a game, uh, don't over-talk. Now, this is for television, not radio. Obviously, if you were giving advice to a radio broadcaster, you would say, no, you have to talk because you are the event. Without you, there is no event. But on television, I, I, I've always said this to young broadcasters. Um, you will never get criticized for saying too little, but if you start talking all the time and trying to match every image with, with a word, um, I, I think you're going to tire out the viewer because it is a visual medium. And I always think a good commentary involves um, matching the pictures, providing a soundtrack, but never overpowering the game itself. People are tuning in to watch the game, not the commentator. But the commentator can ruin it for a viewer at the same time. So it's, it's finding that balance. And I think it comes with years of doing it. I mean, um, you know, when I first started doing it, I, you know, sure had no idea how to, to even come close to finding that balance. And, and that's why I think television is a much harder medium than radio. People think it's easier because you, you say less, but it's, it's about the quality of what you say. It's about the timing of, of what you say, when you say it, and how you work with your co-commentator, which I think is becoming increasingly important. Yeah, what are your thoughts, too, on one-person booths, two-person booths, even three-person booths? Uh, have you done all of those? Uh, do you have a preference? Do you have to modulate what you're doing depending on that? I've done them all. And, yes, you do have to make a big adjustment according to um, who, who you're working with or if you are working solo. Um I think on balance, my preference is for uh, one co-commentator. I, I find the relationship works best that way. I think it uh, is less muddled. Um, the three-man booth can work, but I think it requires a tremendous amount of discipline by all concerns. I think there almost has to be a sort of a, an understanding as to when somebody's going to come in and when somebody's uh, going to keep quiet. And I've worked in, in three-man setups where there has been too much chatter and, and uh, you can sense it immediately. And I don't think it's it's always the way to go. So, so I think it can work, but I think it has to be carefully uh, thought out. I think on NBC, I think Arlo White, um, Lee Dixon and Graham Lasso do that very well. You know, they, they don't talk over each other and you don't sense that they're competing with each other for airtime either. When you're working solo, in a funny kind of way, it's actually easier because you sort of relax and say, OK, I've got 90 minutes here and I can pace this out the way I want to. It doesn't mean that it's you know going to be majestic broadcasting doing it that way. There are no guarantees at all. But you do have the freedom of being able to sort of take your time a little bit and, and make it happen on, on that basis. I would say that um, you know 90 minutes with one voice is not ideal because I think it can bore the, the viewer a little bit. I mean, I, I, I get bored with myself you know, <laughs> listening to my, my, my own voice for, for five minutes, less than 90. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you about the World Cup experience you had this year uh, with Fox Sports. Uh, you were working with Ali Wagner. 
and beyond that, you were working first doing studio calls of games in California, and then you parachuted into Russia in the middle of the tournament. What was that like, that whole experience? Well, it was my eighth World Cup. And I have to say, looking back now, um, a couple of months later, uh, my favorite World Cup, uh, really on all levels, certainly from the, the football point of view, I don't think there's been a better World Cup in my lifetime. Uh, it's certainly right up there. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed working for a new broadcaster, from my point of view, in, in Fox Sports and working with Ali, who uh, was extremely diligent and a great on partner. And, you know, I think that we both worked um, uh, at the relationship beforehand to make sure that that was the way it should be. And um, I can't really remember having a, a co-commentator next to me uh, as well prepared as, as Ali Wagner. She certainly went into it. And I know you spoke to her before the World Cup. Uh, there were no half measures with Ali. Uh, you know, she wanted to um, to knock it out of the park. And... Um, as you mentioned, it, it was a bit of a whirlwind because we had, I think, more games than any other team uh, in the group stage. So uh, just about every day we had a game and that was done from Los Angeles. And the idea was that we would continue to do a couple more games in L.A. and then that would be the end of the World Cup for us. But um, to our surprise, pleasant surprise, just the day before the end of the group stage, we got the calls saying that um, uh, we would like you guys to come out and, and do some games from Russia. So... So uh, that really, for me, you know, made the whole experience because, uh, um, as I say, my eighth World Cup, I was prepared, obviously, to do it uh, off monitor. And you can do a good job off monitor, but you you can't smell the tournament the same way from the monitor. Um, you, you sort of need to be there to really get the backstories, to be able to convey to the viewer, you know, what you've gone through getting to the game, what the fan um, experiences uh, on match day what the stadium is really like what the chatter is like in the the media room beforehand all these things i think for the the business end of the tournament are very important so i was very grateful to david neal and, uh, and all the production staff for, for making that happen and um it's it absolutely elevated uh, a, a very good experience for me into uh, a simply superb one now, I know you do a ton of work, obviously, but you also are a consumer. You watch games. Who are some of your favorite soccer game callers today and why? Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I have great respect for everyone in the business, first of all, because I think, um, you know, that there are, relatively speaking, not many of us who do this. So there is a kinship, you know, and uh, that's, again, what's great about going to tournaments is because you, you bump into all your colleagues, so you don't necessarily see um, every week during the season, and then you compare notes. Um, I mean, as I say, I, I think there are so many, and um, I'm a little biased with the first one I'm going to mention uh, because he happens to, to be one of my best friends, and that is Ian Dark, who uh, American viewers obviously are very familiar with from his years now working on ESPN. And um, we became especially good pals during the years when I was living in London and golf partners as well. But I think aside from that, aside from friendship, um, uh, our golf matches, by the way, were, were very intense. We're, 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 not, we're not expert golf, uh, golfers, but we did enjoy the uh, the on-course rivalry and uh, tended to go down to the 18th hole with the the cameras uh, zooming in on the, uh, on the well, not, not really in our imaginations anyway. But um, no, Ian for me is is a, just a really skillful um, communicator. And I, I think, again, I keep coming back to, uh, you know, younger people trying to get into the business and, and modeling themselves on particular commentators. You can't really model yourself on, on someone else. But what you can do is 
listen to the really good commentators and um, ascertain in your mind what it is that they do well. What I think Ian does well is is communicate with his audience and uh, engage his audience. And he has a very strong, distinctive voice. You know his voice a mile away. And, um, you know, so so Ian, for me, would, would absolutely stand out as, as one of the, the great commentators with Martin Tyler, who uh, who obviously people in the US know as well, who's worked for ESPN in the past and pops up on, on uh, many a, a world feed throughout the, the year, in addition to working for, for Sky Sports. Peter Drury is another one who I have uh, fabulous respect for um, yeah, Peter, who uh, again works for, for various different broadcasters and again has a, a style all of his own and and um, you know a, a vocal style which which uh, tells you that it is Peter Drury on the air. Uh, I've also got some some great um, um, uh, friends around the world in other countries and other languages as well who are perhaps less well known uh, in terms of um, in terms of their notoriety in terms of um, you know. Uh, people knowing them in, in, in the US, for example, but uh, someone like Wolf Fuss in Germany does a does a fabulous job, a, a younger commentator on the way up. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm missing out scores of people here. But um, but as I say, I, I think most commentators enjoy the company of other commentators because we have so much in common. And I can tell you during the World Cup, I was um, texting Ian Dark every day and he was texting me and we were comparing notes even though we weren't working for the same company uh, Ian was working for the World Feed on this occasion um, it, it, it helps to have um, to have somebody else there who maybe has put the emphasis on one country more than you have and, and vice versa Yeah, we're winding down here I appreciate you taking this much time uh, I wanted to ask about the EA Sports gig how did that mm. come together and how do you actually go about doing what you do for it well, it came out of the blue, Grant. Um, about ten months ago, I was actually uh, in a restaurant in uh, Dresden, in Germany, uh, and I, I got this email um, from somebody uh, representing a video game company. That was all it said at the time, mm-hmm. and you know, I didn't know what to make of it, and. Um, so after a couple of phone calls, it emerged that it was EA Sports, mm. and. Um, it had to be hush hush at the time because uh, obviously the video game game business is is a, a big a big business and mm-hmm. um, uh, EA Sports are experts in the field. But what had happened was they had regained the Champions League license, but obviously that that wasn't going to be made public until several months later. And it so happened that the producer um, at EA Sports. Uh, Santi Jaramillo had been following my work for a long time, going back to his days in Colombia uh, when he used to uh, choose the ESPN feed, the English feed for the Champions League. And then he moved to Canada, Vancouver is where they're headquartered. Mm-hmm. And he said, I- I've listened to you for so many years. He goes, and you know, I-, I-, I enjoy your style. He said, and I've always thought if we can find a way of getting you in the game. Um, I think it would work, especially with something like the Champions League, which which I you know associate with with your voice. So um, uh, yeah, I was absolutely thrilled, very honoured, flattered um, to be invited to do it, and uh, very happy too when I learned that Lee Dixon was going to be the co-commentator. Lee, who is obviously a colleague at NBC Sports as well, mm-hmm. and whose work I greatly respect too. Um, so uh, we were thrust together uh, in a studio and. What people need to know about EA Sports, you know, those of you who are gamers who are listening to this, um, when you're commentating for uh, FIFA 19, 
been, as I have been, uh, the Champions League part of the game, of course, this is what we're, we're focusing on, uh, you're not actually seeing the game. So you're visualising everything. You're coming up with words based on scenarios. Mm-hmm. So the production team will give us, you know, an example might be, okay, a corner kick and the big central defenders come up from the back and he's headed it, you know, just over the top. So then the task is to commentate on that as we would in a game maybe 10 or 11 times over. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, think about that and think about trying to do that. Think about the mechanics of trying to do that. And, you know, there are only so many ways you can really, you can really <laughs> convey that kind of scene. Um, so it does actually involve quite a bit of sort of, uh, you know, vocal dexterity, if you like, and, and mental agility. Um, and you're in a studio for several hours a day doing it and you come out of it quite tired in a good way, though. You know, and I found the whole thing, um, you know, challenging in, in a good way. And it took us about 25 days altogether. Uh, um, a big part of it is, is just player names. When I say just player names, it's, um, you know, different inflections of players so that, you know, you're giving the basic, you know, Ronaldo or Ronaldo, and then I'm more excitable. Ronaldo, you know, and then you know, I won't do the the, the highest uh, the highest level belting out a, a Ronaldo goal, but it's uh, you know, imagine doing that for you know thousands and thousands of players. So it, it's all these things together, and um, as I say, I'm you know just really um, uh, you know excited that the game has actually just come out. In fact, as we're talking today, it's just officially uh, been launched today, the, the Champions League, Europa League part of the game that, that Lee and I have, have voiced and um, I hope people enjoy it. Well, congratulations on that. Just to wrap up here, I, I want to ask you, and maybe this is a tough question, what in your opinion are some of the greatest moments that you have called live? Well, the one that stands out and I think will always stand out um, was from 2005. And these were the ESPN days of covering the Champions League uh, and a very special time for me because uh, at that time, ESPN had it exclusively. Uh, It maybe didn't have the profile it does now across the USA, but it is amazing to me how many people who were, you know, high school kids or, or college students back then tell me nowadays that, you know, those games were the, the games, those big, big uh, games were the games that got them into the sport properly. Mm-hmm. Now, 2005, as you know, uh, was um, Milan against Liverpool in Istanbul. And uh, we travelled all the way from ESPN headquarters to this exotic city. And um, the first half, 3-0 to Milan. I was already looking at my notes thinking, OK, we can maybe have a record um, margin of victory for <laughs> European final here. I better have that fact at my fingertips. <laughs> but I was so disappointed thinking we've come all this way and we basically got a dud of a final that's, uh, that's over before it's um, really started. Then, of course, Liverpool produced the comeback of all comebacks and, uh, and beat the Rossoneri on penalties and you know I, I always think of sort of Milan that Milan team as, as a classy team as, as the benchmark uh, it's funny to think that way now you know, in this era of, uh, of the English teams and Real Madrid but Milan back then you know really were uh, a force to be reckoned with and for Liverpool to do what they did I think it will stand the test of time and um, uh, it, it, it's it, the commentary that you do I mean you hope it it does also stand the the test of time and i like to think that what we produced that night didn't over talk but the words hopefully were were right as far as possible and um i'm quite proud of that of that commentary 
Well, you know me. I could keep you here for the next five hours, but uh, I think we should probably wrap it up. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and really enjoy seeing you so often these days on American television. It's really great. Grant, it's been a pleasure, and maybe we should do it again in a couple of years' time and see what projects we're both working on at that stage. Sounds good, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Derek Ray, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on SI.TV, Amazon Channels, and Fubo TV. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.